0: In this episode of Full Stack Radio, I talk to David Heinemeier Hansen about Basecamp's new JavaScript framework, Stimulus, as well as David's new YouTube series, On Writing Software Well, where he gives us a behind-the-scenes look at the code that powers Basecamp 3. This is Full Stack Radio, episode 83. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Full Stack Radio Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Wavin, as always. And today, it's my pleasure to be welcoming back to the show, David Heinemeier Hansen. How's it going, David?
1: Good. Thanks for having me
0: back. So today, what I was hoping to chat with you about, a couple things, uh, really, but I thought it would be good to maybe start with Stimulus.js, which is the new JavaScript framework that uh, Basecamp released sometime over the last few months. I think around Christmas, you put out the first real release. Um, so, I'd love to know, maybe before we get into that, what did JavaScript look like in Basecamp pre-stimulus?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. In in many ways, it looked like stimulus. Uh, The outline of many of the ideas that we have in stimulus are extracted from the Basecamp source code. Some of the ideas are new, um, but they're all inspired by looking at the JavaScript we were writing for Basecamp and trying to pinpoint which were the best patterns. Because unlike the Ruby code we have in Basecamp, um, there wasn't really a single clear style for JavaScript at Basecamp, which meant that we had a, a bunch of different ways of of doing essentially the same thing. Um, we had, I think, about three or four main strains of, of convention for how to do things, and new features ended up imp- being implemented which is sort of like a little bit of a haphazard or random association with, with one of those conventions. So about a year ago, uh, actually last Christmas, over the holidays, I was reading through the entire Basecamp source code as I somewhat frequently do. And it just irked me one time too many how the JavaScript code was not structured as neatly and as nicely as our Ruby code was. So I set about trying to come up with a set of um, extracted conventions for like, what's the best way we're doing things right now? If if you want to do things in in a certain way in Basecamp, of all the different approaches we've taken, which one is the nicest? And can we somehow extract those conventions out to just a a tiny bit of framework uh, encouragement to keep everyone on the same path? I think that's one of the magic elements of Ruby on Rails is that it gives people just a default path. So if you're not doing something special, if you're not doing something unique, you can just stay on the Rails and it'll take you to a good place. And I wanted us to do the same thing for, for JavaScript. Um, so it kind of um, just came together with the combination of reading through the source code, reading through the different styles that we had, and then doing a very broad survey of all the different JavaScript frameworks out there because first of all, I wanted to see, like, could we just migrate to something existing out there? It would be a whole lot easier than us having to write yet another framework if there was just something that was close enough to our vision and values and, and workflow at Basecamp that we could adopt something existing. Unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, that wasn't the case. That the way we write JavaScript at Basecamp is surprisingly off the current mainstream path that the majority of JavaScript frameworks uh, out there right now are actually extremely uh, homogenous in terms of paradigm. They're all about taking JSON from a um, server-side rendering of some kind that returns JSON and then transforming that JSON into DOM elements on the client side. And we just weren't writing much JavaScript like that. We use HTML as transport layer, not JSON, in the vast majority of cases. And we return fully formed HTML documents on the first render. So our style of writing JavaScript and doing the sort of client side in Basecamp is just quite different in, in many ways to your React or your Angular view or whatever other frameworks that are out there that all follow the same paradigm.
0: So I think that is interesting about stimulus. You know, it's, it's different than how all these other frameworks work. And I think you guys sum it up really well with your tagline, right, which is, Uh, the JavaScript framework for the HTML you already have. That resonates with me a little bit because I use Vue personally for a lot of stuff, and I've played with React too, and I still do, you know, very traditional server-side rendered applications for the most part. So when I need to drop in a little bit of like interactivity on a page, you have this really subtle but annoying thing where the whole page is there except for maybe this one button that needs to do something interactive and that's going to flicker into the screen you know milliseconds later than the rest of the template because everything else came from the server and that one thing didn't and it's kind of annoying because there's no reason why I couldn't have that template be there from the beginning except for the fact that this happens to be the paradigm of the tool that I'm using um, to do that so I'm curious like how much of a motivation that is in terms of why you're so focused on making sure that um, the page is coming back fully rendered and, you know, you've sort of demonized this idea of creating templates on the front end.
1: It's not so much about the sort of uh, UI fidelity, in in my opinion. You can kind of get to the same place with uh, either solution. For me, it's majorly around developer workflow and developer productivity and sort of the mismatch of trying to, to make things sort of happen in different paradigms. And clearly, there's plenty of people who've gone full boat on the client side JavaScript thing and, and are trying to or are pushing uh, isomorphic, I think is what they call it, um, applications where you run the same logic on the client side as you do on the server side and trying to cut down on that impairments mismatch. Uh, For me... I want to write the majority of my application in in Ruby in Rails. Uh, I like composing HTML. It, it that's not a sort of a bad thing to happen on the on the server side, and I think when when you have that basic view of things. Um, it becomes about like how can I get these interactive elements to happen with no disruption to that main workflow in, in a way where it's sort of adjective to that workflow. And that was where the whole idea of treating these dynamic elements as more of a progressive enhancement, even if they aren't necessarily progressive enhancement in the truest sense where you could turn off JavaScript and then the whole application still kind of sort of works because that's not true even at Basecamp. If you turn off JavaScript and you try to use um Basecamp, the initial page might render, but um, the, the follow-up interactivity won't be there, right? So it's more about getting that workflow down, giving that sense of, uh, I want to make a new feature. What's the path of least resistance from the idea I have in my head to implementing the controller, to setting up the uh, HTML templates and and being able to reuse as much as possible um, of that on, on the server side, right? So one of the ideas or one of the problems that people often struggle with is, if you want to, let's say, iterate over um, a comment section, there's um, a sort of a block or a, a number of DOM elements per comment, and you want to have the user hit the page initially and um, and see all the comments, and then you want to AJAX in additional comments, either live through other people adding it or the, the current user writing their own comment and, and seeing that instantly. Well, you can do that a number of different ways. You can either... Um, render no comments initially, that you have the entire comment section being rendered client-side by a library that asks the server for some JSON uh, that describes these comments and then it renders it it on the client-side. I find that to have both, as you say, the issues of um, sort of that flickering and the UI fidelity to it, there are sort of ways where you can kind of render some of these things using the same templates on the server-side as you do on the the client-side. With those JavaScript processes, I find them sort of awkward. I don't know how many people actually truly use them like that, but okay, maybe. Um, Or you can do um, sort of what we're doing, which is, uh, or or I was saying, say, the middle part. First, you render everything on the server side, which, with the comments in there, and then when you add an additional comment, you also have the template for those comments on the client side so that an update that comes in live just comes in the form of JSON, and then you can render that. Well, now you have the partial template for comments on both sides. You have to keep those two in sync, right? What we've decided to do at Basecamp and promote that through Stimulus and and elsewhere is, well, what if you just kept all the partials on the the server side? And when additional live comments come in, you send HTML down the wire rather than sending JSON down the wire. I think there's some misconceptions about like how heavy of a format HTML is, perhaps. I don't know if that's part of what's driving the decisions. I find that HTML is actually a very succinct um, transport layer for for data that including the presentation with the data in this form is a wonderful way of doing it. And it's a wonderful way both because you get to um, keep a single set of partials and because you get to compose those partials, and compose those templates in your favorite language and your favorite system, and especially if those templates have somewhat sophisticated logic, you get to execute all of that logic on the server side in the language of your choice. The problem with a lot of modern-day JavaScript development is it's kind of like native development, that even though we have now some and a growing set of um, options in terms of which language do you want to use, it's basically all like a flavor of JavaScript, right? And I've actually grown to to like JavaScript a whole lot more over the past uh, several years, in particular, especially after es five and we got proper class syntax taxes, and so forth. So it's not that JavaScript is a, is a bad language. In fact, I I find it an enjoyable language. But you know what? I find Ruby to be an even more enjoyable language. And if I can spend more of my time writing Ruby, um, I'm a happier programmer. And if I can find a way to spend more of my time writing Ruby or any other back-end language, this is not just about Ruby. This is if you wrote your uh, application in Django, presumably you do so at least in part because you're a fan of Python, right? Or whatever other language you chose to to write the backend in, this is the magic of the web for me. And some of that magic of the web is lost when we are forced or at least think we're forced to write the majority of our application in a single supplied language. That's sort of, to me, the bad old days of the native development where, hey, if you're going to write an iOS app, yeah, there's sort of different ways to do it, but then there's one sanctioned way, right? Like either you're going to write in Objective-C or you're going to write in, in Swift and you're going to do so because Apple told you to. And if you're going to write something for, for Microsoft platforms, you're probably going to write in C Sharp or one of the other languages that they mandate. Well, the magic of the web is you can write it in brainfuck. <laughs> and as long as it spits out HTML, the user's not going to care, right? You can write it in Perl. You can write it in Ruby. You can write it in Python. You can write it in Smalltalk. You can write it in all these languages and this magical diversity of implementation that you're afforded because what happens on the server side bears no impact as to what happens. On the client side, as long as the sort of final output is some HTML, I think it's, it's really special, and I'm very keen not to give that up, in, in part because I'm such a huge Ruby fan, right, or even Ruby lover, that that Ruby is, is what makes my heartbeat. And and JavaScript is, is nice, but um, if I can find a way to write less JavaScript and more Ruby with no sort of substantial trade-offs in terms of fidelity and the kinds of applications that I can write, well, that's a clear win to me, right? And I think that that's part of the envelope that we've been trying to push, not just with stimulus, but also with links, is that in some quarters of the internets, uh, it's kind of taken for granted that unless you write your entire application client-side as a single page application using one of these client-side frameworks, well, there's just certain things you can't do and maybe that's true for some small subset of applications. And then for a large majority of applications, in my opinion, um, you can get the majority of the important benefits that we've got from single page applications through other means, right? You get the snappy page changes, you get the interactivity and, and the feel of a uh, heavily client-sided application with server-side technology. And again, the freedom to pick the implementation language that you enjoy and that to me is such a worthy pursuit that, that we keep doing it even if no one else cares, right? Like um, turbolinks in particular, for example, had some trouble uh, at the offsets in terms of adoption, and, and some of those things were self-inflicted in setting mismatched expectations about, oh, well, it just drops in and there's nothing you can do, which is true, but then it wasn't true necessarily that you could take any random jQuery plugin and then pop that into your application and just have it magically work. There were some sort of trade-offs to it, right? But the the payoff, again, was that um, we got the snap, we got those speedy transitions, we got a feel of an application that was just as well where no end user who wasn't in the web maker world could tell the difference between one application and the other. Um, and and that was that was sort of worth doing it. And then now we've kind of completed the equation with stimulus that's kind of like, okay, turbolinks is going to get you 80% there. But then for the last 20%, um, we were kind of just waving our hands before. Hey, uh, use mutation observer, use some of these techniques to do it, and, and giving you no guidance. Now the, there's a two pack punch that covers the entire range. Turbolinks plus Stimulus is essentially everything we do at Basecamp to write the application the way we do, which, when I say Basecamp, sometimes people also just say, well, that's just Basecamp, but Basecamp is special, unique, or weird, or bad, or whatever you want to say. Um, there's also plenty of other applications out there that work in substantially the same way. GitHub is a great example of using similar techniques, even if we aren't using exactly the same tool set. They use triple links in the uh, guys called PJAX, which is actually the predecessor of Links. Uh, they use the same stimulus type approach with Mutation Observer. Um, Josh Peake actually just released a framework that they've been working on for a while that has the same ideas. So these ideas are more about like which paradigm are you interested in, in following? And then there's different expressions of that. But we've clearly said, like, hey, there isn't just one paradigm here. If you want to write a beautiful, modern, interactive, uh, high fidelity application, you do not have to go client side, heavy duty framework, JSON over the wire. There's multiple paths. And why aren't we celebrating the fact that, uh, that that's the case?
0: Just wanted to take a quick break to thank one of this week's sponsors, and that is Rollbar. So here's what Paul, the founder of CircleCI, had to say about one of their favorite features of Rollbar and how it helps them keep things running at CircleCI.
2: Before we used Rollbar, we used a different error tracking service, and we were shopping for a new one. And So we did the, the tour and looked at uh, Rollbar and all of its competitors, and it was it was really the feature set of Rollbar that was super impressive and that made us go there. In particular, the people tracking, I think, is, is really... Uh, it's just a great feature but it also kind of speaks our language because we're very focused on making sure that customers are happy and we want to make sure that we have like an individual understanding of what happens to each customer so the fact that we're able to click on this customer is experiencing a lot of bugs and to be able to follow the, the progression of bugs that they've been experiencing is very important if we get an email from a customer and the customer says, you know, your, your website keeps glitching on me and being able to, to go to Rollbar and to say, okay, you know, this individual customer, this is how they're experiencing the site. Because otherwise you have to give like an overall state of things and overall things are looking good because if they weren't, we'd be dealing with it.
0: So I've been using Rollbar a lot lately on my SaaS app, Nitpick CI, and loving it. Uh, If you want to check it out, you can head over to rollbar.com slash fullstackradio, and you can use their bootstrap plan for free for 90 days. So check that out, and uh, thanks again to Rollbar for sponsoring Fullstack Radio. Um, Something I'd be interested in diving into a little bit more is just sort of the technical mechanics of how you do certain things with stimulus that I think would sound like challenging to people who are maybe used to using something like Vue or react. So like the example you gave of kind of dynamically adding like new comments to a page, if you're trying to avoid storing any templating logic on the client side and you want the template logic to come from the server like what does that actually look like in terms of is there an endpoint that's just sending back a single comments HTML? Are you reusing another controller for that somehow? Are you re-rendering the entire list of comments every time a new comment is added, but from the server? Um, I'm just not sure what you guys are doing there. So I'd love to learn more about sort of the mechanics there and kind of the approach that you take for those sorts of situations where new HTML needs to be added as a result of something that happened on the client side, but you want it to come from the server somehow.
1: Yeah, that's a good example. Let's just stick with the comments example. When someone submits a new comment, they'll hit um, comments controller create in in a Rails application or anything else that follows a REST-based MVC setup, and that action at least in Rails, can return different things comp- depending on the um, um, on the MIME time that's requesting it. If this is coming from like a, a box standard old uh, form that's submitting the whole page and requiring a page change, well, we can create the comment and then we can return a redirect that returns you essentially back to to that page with the list of comments that'll then refresh, right? It'll, it'll redirect you back to a show action. They'll then show everything. So that's sort of the, the box standard way of doing. If you're, on the other hand, submitting, um, a JavaScript request, which is what we do with these form remotes in Rails, uh, where you're submitting the form, but you're not really submitting the form through the standard operating principles of just HTML form, right? Like you're taking the form values and turning them into an Ajax request, um, and then submitting that to the server. So that comes across as as basically a a JavaScript request. What we can do there, again, is we can create the Comment And then instead of returning a redirect, we can return the partial that you need, that new comment, the single partial. So on the client side, you'll take the returned HTML from that request that you had uh, created, and then you'll simply just append that to the end of your comment section. So that's one way where you keep the entire set of partials and templates that you need on the server side. The only thing that the client knows is, okay, I'm going to get some HTML back from the server. Let me append it to, to this container.
0: Yeah. Okay. So, what is the like? What does it look like to submit that request? Are you sub- like? I know a lot of time with Rails, you'll use like an extension at the end of the actual route, right? To say I either want the JSON version or the HTML version or whatever. So, when you're making this like post request to send through the comment, are you sending that to like comments slash create or is it just a mime type? Or are you just checking to see that um you know it's an XML HTTP request in some header or, or what are you doing to determine the difference?
1: Um, I think actually a whole three work. If you do it explicitly through the URL, you will route it through that specific MIME type. If you do it just on MIME type, we'll do MIME type detection and fetch you the right one. And I think we even have also uh, a header we're submitting in some cases. So I think the, the, whichever route you choose to go doesn't matter as much as just having um a controller that's capable of responding to multiple variants. One of the things we do in Basecamp is, not only do we have usually variants both for, okay, if someone was just submitted through HTML, or if it was submitted as a partial request through JSON, but we'll also have, for example, full API responses as part of the controllers themselves. So this case might also just return an actual piece of JSON, right? Because these days, most people do their APIs in JSON, we, and we do too, right? We have an, a, a JSON API, even though we actually don't use it internally for the majority of these renders. Um, so you just need some way of determining what kind of um, um, sort of variant does the, uh, what kind of format does the client want back? Well, do, you, do they want a partial? Do they want a full JSON? Do they want a, uh, a full redirect from a from an HTML request and then then go accordingly. The majority of times what we do is we rely on these partial returns of, of HTML chunks through the submission of uh, JavaScript requests that are built up as these AJAX requests. All this stuff is built into Rails. I, I mean, different frameworks do it differently. But if in Rails, if you say you have a remote form, we basically have a little bit of... Um, progressive enhancement for that form that the, instead of allowing the submission to go through the normal channels, intercepts that submission event, turns it into this um, AJAX request, and then does the the handiwork of, uh, of the return afterwards. In stimulus, you can do sort of similar things. So stimulus doesn't bother itself with um, any rendering logic, as you say, right? It's for the HTML you already have. But we follow the same idea. For example... Um, let's say you're, you're pushing some button to lazy load a piece of content on your page. Well, for most stimulus uh, actions, you'd, just, you'd hook that button up to an action and that action would then call a fetch to your server in the same way where it would say, well, I'm basically doing a JavaScript fetch and I'm doing a JavaScript fetch because I want a partial of HTML. Then you get that chunk of HTML back and you could then put it wherever you want. Um, but again, you've you then sidestepped the necessity of having any template log- logic on the on the client side.
0: Yeah. So something I've seen you guys do in the past, or at least I've seen it in Rails related stuff, is instead of sending back like just HTML, a lot of the time you would send back like a script tag that you would append to the end of the body that would have that HTML in it, but it would also have the logic to actually insert that element into the place where it's supposed to go on the page. Are you sort of moving away from that to sort of encapsulate that inside these stimulus controllers and manipulating like the element that the controller holds a reference to directly with just the HTML that comes back now?
1: Um, Yeah, that's that's a good point. Um, server-side JavaScript responses, or SJR, as we like to call them, is uh, we don't actually need to append a script tag at the bottom of the page. You can simply just eval what you get back from the okay. server-side when you do it in that form. Um, and I kind of, I, I'm a 2, two minds there. Those responses can't get out of hand if all you are doing is basically, oh, let me take this partial and append it to this one Container, I think that's actually still a valid and easier way of doing those kinds of responses than wrapping it all up in a stimulus controller to do so if there's no other processing or additional logic that needs to happen. But as soon as you go beyond that default case of basically just adding partials to existing containers, those responses are kind of like they have to have everything in them, right? Um versus a stimulus controller can factor that logic into methods. It's a whole class. It's everything. Versus uh, an SJI is a simple sort of script eval. And I think uh, there's sort of a time and a place for for both of them. But as soon as we do any complicated logic, we're we're definitely in the stimulus camp right now.
0: Got it. So something I'd be interested to know is how much are you using stimulus in Basecamp? Now, like, is there a bunch of stuff still left over that's still working the old way? What's sort of been migrated over? What were sort of like obvious candidates for, you know, rewriting what you had before using stimulus? What's kind of your approach been to sort of introducing it into the code base and trying to replace some of the ways that you were doing things before?
1: That's a good question. I think one of the um, mistakes that a lot of people sometimes get themselves into is that they come up with this new idea, and it's a great idea, and then they think they have to rewrite the entire history of the world to this new idea, and preferably by tomorrow to do the idea justice. We didn't think about that at all because I don't think that's actually a helpful way of getting technology to move forward. Um, what I like to do and what we do at Basecamp is we basically look at, uh, at, at tomorrow with, with sort of the promise of tomorrow and the tools of, uh, of tomorrow. And then for the most part, we live with the fact that we wrote software yesterday and last week and last month and last year. And if we're constantly trying to rewrite everything to keep up with what's our latest, best, great idea, we would do be doing nothing else, right? So we've actually not taken to rewriting all the JavaScript we already have in Basecamp 3 to Stimulus. We cherry-picked a handful of controllers to validate the idea. We rewrote those. There was no particular rhyme or re- reason to to them. We rewrote those, and then we basically just say, from this point forward, all new JavaScript functionality we will write in Stimulus. So we have this sort of coexistence of um, certain parts of the application being written with not only a different style but even a different dialect of JavaScript. We were using CoffeeScript for many years and still have a lot of CoffeeScript in the code and we have no intentions of just rewriting all that CoffeeScript just for the sake of rewriting it. Um, and then we have this all this new code as new functionality as we add new features to Basecamp or do substantial changes to existing features, we create stimulus controllers written with um, ES5 or 6+, or all the latest, greatest, best ideas, and we let these things coexist. And that actually works surprisingly well. We're not only just letting these sort of paradigms coexist, we're also letting different... bundling frameworks coexist. In Rails, we had and still have um, something called the asset pipeline, which does compilation of both JavaScript and and CSS through different forms of, of transpilers, for example. For JavaScript, we have CoffeeScript, and for CSS, we have SAS and so forth. And that's a great way of structuring a lot of sort of simpler forms of JavaScript code. It's not such a great format for this new style of writing JavaScript with proper requires and uh, tree shaking and all these sort of modern affordances that um, this latest batch of JavaScript compilers can give us. So new JavaScript code with stimulus is written using a plugin or a gem for uh, Rails called Webpacker, which basically uh, wraps Webpack and presents it in a zero-configuration way to Rails applications and makes it really easy for people to use Webpack, Babel, um, and and all this wonderful new tooling together with stimulus, so we can basically have these a foot in both worlds and not be hampered by that. Um, and I think that is the only true realistic way of migrating existing large applications such as Basecamp. If you stop the clock of the world and try to rewrite everything from scratch, you're going to fail. The only rewrite that I support is when you want an actual different application, which is what we. Um, somewhat surprisingly perhaps do I mean frequently is a large word for things that happen maybe five or seven years but we've done several times at Basecamp right we've written base rewritten Basecamp three times and we didn't rewrite it because we were sort of trying to pay down technical debt or we were infatuated by a new framework, either on the client side or the backend side. We wrote it because we wanted a different application and the existing customers of the old applications are going to take kindly to us just uh, ripping everything out from underneath them. Yes, all versions of Basecamp or deal or with the same problem space, but it attacks it in quite different ways. And someone who's used to Basecamp 2, if we just like they woke up one morning and hit refresh in their browser and bam, Basecamp 3 was in front of them, they'd go like, what the hell have you done to my application, and can I have the old one back, please? I think the tech industry seems to be intent of relearning this lesson over and over and over again, that once you have an established user base, you really can't move the cheese that far without Rebellion. I mean, uh, Snap's latest um, kerfuffle is a good example of that, right? You have an existing user base who have a existing workflow and mental patterns about how things are supposed to work. And if you try to move that around too much, you're going to get in trouble. At the same time, we also want to progress. We want to go forward and we want to appeal to new customers and new users. And I think that that's why we've chosen at Basecamp to have this paradigm of like, well, Once we launch a new version of Basecamp and once that version of Basecamp have some sort of critical mass of users on it, we are limited and constrained in ways that we can change it drastically and And that's okay, that's good, that's actually healthy. What's not healthy is then to think, well, okay, I have to maintain this until the end of time. So what we do instead is when we have enough good ideas that warrant a major change, we launch a new version of Basecamp, which then coincides with a good time where you can say, like, hey... All of our best ideas, all of our best technical ideas, we now have a fresh code place we can apply them to. This isn't why we did it. We didn't do this rewrite for technical reasons. But now that we've been afforded this opportunity, we're certainly going to take advantage of it. So that's part of what we do with, with stimulus as well, right? Like if, if we were to start work on Basecamp 4 tomorrow, which we're not, but if we were, obviously everything would be written with stimulus.
0: Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Cool, so... Um maybe another topic that would be worth getting into is uh, recently sort of out of nowhere, you started up this new like series of screencasts on YouTube called uh, On Writing Software Well, which um, for me personally, anyways, that's sort of like a dream come true, because I feel like you guys have always had sort of, you know, controversial, whether or not they deserve to be controversial ideas about uh, building software compared to a lot of what you see out there as best practices and stuff. And it's really fascinating to be able to sort of be able to look under the hood and see how you guys are building stuff uh, that is obviously software that's being delivered at a pretty significant scale that has a pretty high degree of complexity to the sorts of things that it needs to do. But you somehow manage to keep everything super simple And without breaking away from, you know, the Rails conventions and stuff like that. So it's it's just really interesting to see sort of the approach there. Uh, But I'm curious what kind of made you get up one day and just think, hey, I think maybe I'm going to start making screencasts showing how Basecamp is written uh, under the hood.
1: It's funny because Rails was put into this world with a screencast back in 2004 i believe it was um before screencasts were really a thing that people did so i learned early the power of um show not tell I did the infamous or famous, <laughs> wherever you wanted, whoops version of the 15 minutes how to build a blog. And it was very clear that that just had such a powerful impact on a lot of people who, if I'd just written up a blog post or spoke at a conference, they'd go, yeah, that's interesting, right? Like, then you see the actual code and you see it happening, and you see it be put together in front of your eyes, and you go, like, this is undeniable. Like We can have all sorts of arguments, but this is undeniable. This is actually what's happening. This is actually what it takes. That is astounding. Um, so I've, I've long had this belief that th- this is a great way to teach. Uh, then over the years, um, I've gotten myself into all sorts of arguments on how to build software well, how to write software well. And what I find is that uh, the most fierce arguments are usually the ones furthest removed from actual code. The more uh, sort of passionate that people argue, the more abstract they get. And I've never been such a big fan of abstract notions of how to write software well. I've always been interested in different ways of doing it and then going like, okay, like that, that's a interesting theory. Let's apply it to some code and let's see if it makes it better. And doing the, basically that A-B testing, you take a piece of code that's written in one style and then you rewrite it in another style and you go like, did I improve it? Did I make it clearer? Did I make it shorter? Did I make it easier to understand? What are the changes here and what's the impact on the rest of the system? And then usually it's quite clear. And I've sat down with many programmers who I've had great debates with over the years um, where we've disagreed uh, strongly about things. And then we sit down in front of a computer together and try to rewrite a piece of code and we arrive at the same conclusions. All of a sudden, most of the fundamental disagreements weren't so fundamental after all. And they just were different expressions of our past, of our experiences and the applications we had worked up or two up until that point when we started debating it. Once we sit down in front of the same piece of code, we have a tendency to read similar conclusions. That doesn't mean that everyone agrees about everything, even if they're looking at a piece of code, but it does mean that it's a lot easier to create that common space. So I wanted to recreate that sensation, the sensation of sitting down next to another programmer, looking at a piece of code, and then talking about how to make it better or how it came to be the way it was. And I think uh, a screencast is just a really great way of doing that. The other thing, or the other reason for this was uh, I felt like there was an abundance of tutorial material, which is wonderful. That's a great way of learning things in terms of, like, oh, here's a thing, and here's how you use it to say hello world or whatever. Uh, and then there's abundance of very abstract thoughts of like, oh, here are the solid practi- or practices of how you make uh, software better. This is what the law of the meter means, and it's all expressed in this example code. There was very little in the form of like, hey, here's a real piece of production code that needs to deal with like 45 different considerations and uh, features and so on that uh, apply to messages in Basecamp. Oh, uh, all of a sudden, a lot of these theories around how software should be structured, they start to, to show another side, one that wasn't visible. When you just looked at a stylized, uh, idealized piece of example code that was neat and tight and didn't need to deal with so many competing considerations at the same time. So, those are sort of the two forces that were pulling at me that like this, this great feeling of sitting down with another programmer, looking at real code and making progress on understanding together and coming up with better ways to write it. And this abundance of material out there that were teaching programmers and techniques around very stylized example-based content um, that then left them somewhat unprepared, I think, for reality, when reality intruded with its time constraints and legacy code and uh, multiple competing considerations. And then I, I can forgive programmers if they fall into a reality like that and go like, do you know what? None of this fancy stuff I thought was, was applicable actually works here. Like There's such a disconnect between those two worlds that I think it's easy to become disillusioned and feel like, well, patterns can't teach me anything or best practices can't teach me anything. So I'm just going to go hog and I'm not going to, Spend too much time worrying about any of that bullshit. I need—I have a feature to ship tomorrow, right? And that would be a great tragedy, a great travesty. So, with these, pot or with these screencasts, I'm hoping to show like, no, it is possible. It is possible to sort of have a very large application like Basecamp. Basecamp has hundreds of screens, um, and still maintain a sense of architecture, a sense of. Um, sort of simplicity and style, even if we're forced to juggle and trade off competing considerations, right? Because that's the other thing that's really fascinating to me is that every pattern you see written up works for something, right? It's not that there's very few patterns, very few best practices that are just uniformly bad and unusable and can't be used for anything. There are totally cases where those things will work. That's not the hard part. The hard part isn't learning those patterns and being able to recite them. The hard part is balancing them and trading them off against each other when you're hit with a real piece of code. This is what I really, these are my favorite parts of the screencast is when we get into considerations where like, hey, I have two beliefs, I have two values about how a piece of code, like this should be written, they're in conflict. Now, how do we resolve that? Like, I actually believe this pattern is a good pattern, this pattern is a good pattern, but here's a piece of code that calls for some application of both of them and they're in opposition. How do we resolve that, right? Um, I had an example, I think, just in the last episode where we were talking about privacy of methods. Um, And I was using a piece of code that was actually using send, which basically sidesteps all privacy protection in Ruby. And you're like, if you just looked at that in isolation, you would go like, oh, that's a bad practice. That's a code smell. That's probably someone who didn't know what they were doing. You need to make that public, blah, 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 right? And then... We got to have a whole conversation about. Well, yeah, that's true. If that was the only consideration we had, well, here's another consideration. Here's why it matters that uh, that this is actually the better trade-off of the options that we have.
0: Yeah, I think it's um it's really fascinating. I think the uh, the whole episode about the use of globals was sort of another good example of that too, where you know you talk sort of in detail about what the alternative would be and why that would be awful and uh, I think that's a voice that's uh, missing in a lot of this teaching material that's out there. Absolutely
1: and I think that this is, that. that is the key part right? We can all say like, oh I want simple clear code, I want this, that and the other thing. We all want those things that's not interesting, you're not going to teach anyone <laughs> anything about that, right? Um, what's interesting is when, when you are in these um, situations where you have to choose one good over another good, and I think that's where the wisdom of programming really enters and that's Uh, how you level up as a programmer and i want to at least just help impart some of my thinking through it that doesn't mean you have to arrive at the same conclusions that i do but if you know the steps that i took and the considerations that i had then maybe you can develop your own eye for spotting similar considerations or weighing similar things even if you come to different outcomes and i think that's uh, just key to becoming a better programmer
0: Just wanted to take a quick break to thank one of this week's sponsors, and that's CodeChip. So CodeChip is a hosted, continuous integration platform in the cloud that helps you increase your development, productivity, and ship to production more frequently. CodeChip lets you standardize your tooling and processes across your teams, speeds up your build times, and integrates into your existing ecosystem of tools. Cochip is a great fit for your team whether you're just trying to speed up the build times for large apps or if you want to set up complex delivery pipelines for your microservices using tools like Docker, Kubernetes, and others. Forrester recently released their latest continuous integration tools report, which provides valuable guidance into the rapidly growing continuous integration and continuous delivery market. And CodeShip actually scored as a top five continuous integration vendor in this report. If you're interested in reading this report and learning more about what makes for a great continuous integration and continuous delivery service, uh, you can check out the show notes for this episode and I'll have a link there for you. So if you want to spend less time managing your tools and speed up your software development, give CodeChip a try and sign up for free today at CodeChip.com. I've been a user of CodeChip uh, for many years for all the open source projects that I run continuous integration on, as well as private projects where I use CI, and I couldn't be happier with the service. So thanks to CodeChip for sponsoring the podcast this week, and back to the show. So uh, if you have time, I wouldn't mind talking about a couple of the interesting things that you've kind of went over in some of those uh, screencasts that uh, I have some questions about for you. So the first thing that I think I'm most interested in uh, that really like the thing that surprised me the most seeing sort of some of the base code was the extremely aggressive use of concerns compared to what I've ever seen anyone do anywhere else. And I think a lot of people are sort of scared to write their code that way because they there's so many people out there who will tell you you know this is a completely horrible idea uh, for reasons that they probably can't actually articulate um, but I'd be curious to know like how do you decide to use this technique and when do you use it and why do you think you're not suffering these mysterious consequences that you're supposed to be suffering because of it
1: that's a Great question again, and I think one that's very hard to answer without looking at actual code, which is exactly how I think these myths appear, right? If you just look in isolation about uh, a single piece of code, and a single consideration or a single feature that you want to expose in your application, you can write that as a concern, or you can write that as a, as a separate object, you can write that in a million different ways. And I think there are, in often cases, there are very fair arguments for why you perhaps wouldn't want to use a concern for it, right? But exactly for the reason you say. I show off some of the classes that uh, think the recordings class in Basecamp, which is one of the major arteries of, uh, of logic, has maybe like 40 concerns applied to it, right? Because there are 40 different considerations and features that sort of apply in various ways to this uh, routing point in the code. Um, and I've tried to write it in a bunch of different ways. I didn't... Con- arrive at concerns that just might like, oh, which programming techniques are there out there? Um, we call them concerns in Rails. Ruby just calls it mix-ins, and uh, other languages calls it aspects, and so on. There's a lot of different ways you can describe this uh, idea of factoring out um, uh, sort of responsibility from a class. And uh, I've, just, I've tried to write in a bunch of different ways. And when I do write in these ways, I've ended up with code that was worse. And some of that, when I say worse, I mean both in terms of sort of, is this easier to understand? Um, like, let's say we took those 40 considerations out and instead of having them as concerns, we had them as 40 different classes that were taking sort of uh, recording classes and input to themselves. Um, do, does that make it better? Like, in which way is the system easier to understand? Which is... What I really love then getting into, because then you get into some of these sort of, in my opinion, shallow defenses. Well, surface area, right? That's one of the things. So people say like, well, here you have a class that might have, um, let's say, 150 exposed methods in it. You're like, that's a lot of surface area. Uh, Yeah, that surface area, the amount of surface area, the number of methods that are shown to you when you go like recording object dot methods and see the list. That's not how people read code, right? Most people don't code in that way. So that's not actually that important of a consideration. What's more important is when you read the code base, can you understand it? Can you follow the major plot lines of this piece of code? Or are you constantly being uh, distracted by side quests? Um, That's one of these ideas that I really like about concerns is they allow you to present the main plot in a very clear to follow manner. Now, you have to keep in mind that that main plot has some asterisks, right? There's some other secondary auxiliary concerns and complexity that gets weaved in, um, but most of the time you don't need to worry about that. And I find that, to me, that's a very compelling idea, and I find that the code is much easier to read. I, I still understand the, the pushback. Well, like these asterisks might come back to bite you in the ass at some point, right? Yeah, they might, and you have to trade that risk off against the rewards that you get from having this very clear plot line and being able to simply understand a system most of the time, right? Um, And and to me, it's just been so overwhelmingly worth it. It reminds me a little bit about the discussions, especially in the early days of Ruby, I had with people who really like static typing, right? Or explicit typing. And they went like, how can you understand the system if you just have dynamic types and you don't know what this is and you don't know what you're going to get and you're doing like binding and so on? Like It doesn't make any sense. And I just, the best way I have to describe that is I think there's a reason why we have, I don't know how many programming languages that's been invented up until (laughs) this point, probably hundreds, right? Yeah. Because different brains at different times with different perspectives think in different ways. And Ruby as a language uh, appeals to a certain programmer, right? And then another type of programmer will go like, well, you're not going to take my, um, static explicit types for my dead cold hands and I really like C Sharp or I like Java or I like some other uh, language like that. And I go like, that's wonderful. That's great that you like that. That does not invalidate the experience that I have writing code in my domain where having explicit static typing is not a help. It's a hindrance and it's a drawback and I think it makes uglier code and blah, 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 blah. blah. And then you have those considerations even within the same language that people could otherwise agree on, right? Like I have most of the furious debates I've had about concerns and mix-ins have been with other Rubyists, right? Who are already on the page about having late binding and having um, static explicit typing. But it's just, it's turtled all the way down in that sense that we just, there are different ways of, of structuring and reading code and, and developing a plot line for your architecture and, and how to follow it that appeal to different people. And well, I'm trying to show at least like... It, The most dangerous thing uh, about best practices is when you dilute yourself into thinking there's only one right way to do things, right? Um, Then those best practices actually become worse practices. And I want to show there's multiple narratives here. There's multiple plot lines. We can write code in so many different ways. As we were talking about at the beginning of the program, the wonder and the beauty of the web is the fact that it does not mandate which kind of development environment developers can use on the backend, right? They get this amazing, unprecedented freedom um, in terms of a major distribution platform for applications. And, and that gives rise to a diversity in thinking. It gets uh, rise to a diversity in paradigms. We can have everything from object-oriented to functional to uh, procedural programming, all sorts of different styles. And, and in Ruby case, Ruby's case, a mix of all of them, right? Um, and I think that that's, that's what's interesting to me it's, it's the interesting part is that we don't agree on these things all the time and we can have these interesting debates about like when one thing applies and, and when they don't apply and I just want to ground those discussions as interesting as they are and as interested as I am in having them in real code. Let's look at a real piece of code. Do you think this looks terrible? Um, do you think this is horrible? Hey, try to rewrite it in a different way and see if you come up with something that's better. And if you do, I'll be the first person to say like, hey, that's better. Let me, let me try to do that, right? Um, but it has to take offset in real code because otherwise we're just sort of flailing.
0: Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, one more quick question before we go. Um, last time we talked, one of the questions I had for you was about the, the rake stats that you posted for um, Basecamp, where you had an enormous amount of controllers, like way more than I think most people would ever expect to have seen. And we talked a lot about what you guys are doing there. That's interesting. Um, and I've been trying to apply a lot of those ideas ever since that conversation about something that I'd love to get your take on is situations where you want to have a controller that has like a singular resource name instead of like a plural. So I was looking through Basecamp to try and find some examples of where I thought this might apply. And the main one that I could find is like the theme that you're setting for your Basecamp experience. What is your sort of like conventions for controllers that have, just like a singular resource name, like which actions are you using on those? Are you still naming them in a plural way or a singular way? How does that influence like your route naming decisions? I just love to learn anything that you can share about sort of the thought process there.
1: Sure. In Rails, it actually, those thoughts get pretty easy because there's a, a way to cut with the grain in Rails and how you set up your controllers. And the first way to cut with the grain is you name your controllers plurally. So even if you're setting a single theme, you're going with themes controller. Because that's a way to just have the mapping from your routes definition get hooked up automatically. But what we do allow when you declare your routes in Rails is you can declare your routes as plural or singular. When you do your uh, map dot uh, resources, you're going to get Plural, right? So if you do map.resources uh, themes, you're going to get basically plural routing that's going to assume that you have uh, an index uh, and, uh, and so forth. If you do it singularly, uh, we're going to assume that uh, you don't have an ID, for example, right? You do map.resource theme. There's not going to be a theme slash one or whatever. There's just going to be slash theme. And when you access slash theme, it goes straight to the, to the show um, action. And, and that's basically all there is to it. Like Rails just gives you this sort of fork in the road, just asks you, hey, name your controller in um, in a plural way, because then you don't have to change your code if you change your route mapping. And then in your routes, you can make the choice. Do you want to expose this as a collection or just as a singular element? And that follows the plural singular divide.
0: Got it. Perfect. Well, I think maybe that's a good place uh, to, to start wrapping up. Uh, Thanks so much for your time, man. It's been an absolute pleasure uh, having you back on and chatting with you. What's the best way for people to sort of keep up with some of the stuff that you're doing with like this new uh, YouTube series that you're working on?
1: Yes, we actually, so I just started the YouTube series on my own um, account on YouTube, and then we just moved it over so that we're going to share a new YouTube channel called Getting Real. That Jason Fried, my partner at Basecamp and designer and writer, will be showing his considerations about design and how he structures new pages and so on, which is really interesting. He's posted the first episode of that already, and I will continue my series on writing software well over in that channel, too. Um, I was going to tell you just to go to youtube.com slash getting real, but I don't know if that actually works yet. We were setting up this new YouTube channel and what we were finding was until you have like 500 subscribers, you can't actually pick your name or something like that. so maybe you can share something in the show notes when i figure figured out what it is. Uh, otherwise, I always tweet out new uh, episodes on my Twitter. Uh, my Twitter is a bit of a firehose, so I'll excuse people if, if they're just interested in the code part. Maybe they don't want my rants about American imperialism. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then uh, then maybe the the firehose is a bit much. But if they can stomach that, then it's at DHH. Um, and I'll be sure to, to post there when uh, new episodes come out. But otherwise, if you... I think probably go on YouTube and let me actually try that right now Uh, on writing software. Well, you're probably going to find the series.
0: Perfect. Well, yeah, again, thanks so much for coming on, man. Um, It's a pleasure to talk to you every time I get to have you on and uh, yeah, thanks again. Thanks for having me. If anyone's interested in show notes for this episode, they'll be at fullstackradio.com slash 83. If you enjoy the show, leave a review on iTunes or uh, shoot me a message via email or via Twitter and let me know what you think. Uh, Thanks, everyone. See you next time.